We are taking the whole of this academic year to look at Luke's gospel. We're doing it properly. And uh, that's because we believe that the Bible is God's message to us. So as we look at the scriptures and what they have to say to us, I'm going to pray, as I normally do, that God would open our hearts, that our hearts, our lives would be good soil for the seed of his word to come, to germinate. And I'm praying it now, praying that our hearts would be good soil uh, for your word, Lord God, to come from the scriptures and land in us, take root, germinate and bear fruit. If you want that, we say amen. Amen. Good. Okay. Um, We have got as far as the end of Luke chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or um, electronic device, turn to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. The context of these few verses is that Jesus has recently been baptized... In his baptism, the Holy Spirit came down on him. He was then tempted in the wilderness and then went to Nazareth, which is where the story got to a couple of weeks ago. As Steve Thomas told the story from earlier in Luke chapter 4 of Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth, reading from Isaiah people saying what gracious words he spoke and then trying to kill him. So at the end of that little section, verse 30 says that Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way, right through the murderous crowd of those with whom he'd grown up. Because Nazareth was his hometown. They rejected him pretty forcefully, because they were threatening to kill him, and he walked through the crowd and went on his way. And that's what brings us to these next few verses, where Jesus is in Capernaum. That's it there. That is Capernaum. That is where these few verses are set, right by the sea. It says in verse 31, he went down to Capernaum. Indeed, he would have gone down physically, because Capernaum was by the sea and at a lower level. He went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching, because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out, at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed. And they said to each other, what is this teaching with authority and power? He gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Now Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. 
Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You're the Son of God! But he rebuked them and wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that's why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. By the way, Judea there is, as throughout Luke, a reference to the whole of Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. So carrying on as he was. That's how Luke uses the word. Now, there is a jugular vein in these verses which we're going to get to soon enough. But before we get there, I just want to highlight three values that come out incidentally in these verses that are part of our culture and practice as a church. And I just want us to spot them there, take a moment to pay attention to them, and just ask ourselves, is there anything that God would want us to refresh ourselves in those three areas before we move on to the main course, if you like, which all hinges around one particular word. So the first thing to note is that Jesus didn't just stay as lovely people in OX2 in the O'Connell's house there, looking wonderful. Um, There's often many more than that, by the way, when the OX2 missional community gathers, because that's part of that, plus some extra family members thrown in for good measure. Jesus didn't just stay in the synagogue and do public ministry with everybody sat down nicely and then go home and switch off. Rather, Jesus' ministry continued in the home. And we believe that as a church, God does just as much in us, through us, for us, in our homes, as we gather in all kinds of different ways in our homes, uh, or students who don't have anything as grand as a home in your rooms, it's kind of a home, uh, it's just you have to go outside the front door to go to the toilet in lots of cases, I don't know if that counts as a home or not, but anyway, wherever you may be, God will meet with you as you gather together, two or three in Jesus' name, and Jesus is there present, active, doing his stuff. Later in Acts, which is written by Luke as well, we have these, this two-volume work, Luke-Acts. Later in Acts, the same author, Luke, we see the same pattern a number of different times. In chapter 16 of Luke's Gospel, Paul is there in Philippi, and with his team, they find a place of prayer, a public place. They go into the public place and connect with people who already want to pray, And in that place of prayer, they start to share a bit of their lives and God starts to turn up. But they move on from there, chapter 16 tells us, into Lydia's house. 
And more stuff goes on in Lydia's house. And a church is formed, a Christian community is formed in Lydia's house. The same is true in, uh, in Corinth, in chapter 18, Paul started in the synagogue. He had the opportunity, just as Jesus had done, to preach in the synagogue. He starts in that public place, but then moves next door into the house of Titius Justus. And again and again, we see this dual thing going on. Now, we've often talked about, uh, like many churches have, for many years, the need for big meetings and small meetings. And we've talked about the big meeting being a place where there's a stronger proclamation of God's word and sort of um, higher praises in worship, more likelihood of the people leading worship, singing in tune, all those sorts of blessings. And the value of smaller groups where there might not be the same strength of ministry, but we get to know each other. We get to talk honestly about the reality of our lives and support one another in fellowship and in prayer. What we have been learning as a church in recent years is that this bigger and smaller thing isn't just about us and what we experience, but the bigger and the smaller is also about how we get involved in God's mission in the world. These verses in Luke chapter 4 are not a story of church life as we know it, Sunday meeting, midweek group. They are a story of Jesus on mission. He's gone out into a hostile place, and the big thing is to do with Jesus stepping into the public sphere and connecting with more people than he's connected with before. Our lives have some of that in them. It's a bit different to what we're doing here on a Sunday morning. That's what's going on in Luke chapter 4. And then the connections that are made in those more public places find their way into our home lives too. And the things get connected up. The big and the small isn't just us reading back into scriptures, Sunday meeting, Thursday evening, small group. Because that's not what was going on then. That pattern of big and small is great and it serves us well. But God wants us to see that it's also part of how his mission works. So just to take an example, if you... Um, like from our own church life, one of the clearer examples is what goes on around family fun and a group in the church called Family Life. In the other hall in this building, the other one that's the same size as this one, there is a toddler group that happens uh, week in, week out on a Tuesday morning, often 40, 50, 60 people coming in, probably the same sort of number that would have been found in a synagogue, say, It's a slightly more public place. People from the wider community come in and there's a connection made there. But then there are other things that happen with those relationships. There's sometimes been film nights in people's homes and mums especially have come in to those and connected a bit more with the mums from the church who have experienced a relationship with Jesus and have love to give away as an overflow from that. At the moment, there's a parenting course going on monthly because some of those mothers, particularly at the moment, have seen there's some quality of care and um, I don't know what else it is they see in our parenting, in your parenting, 
Um, they thought there's something to learn here, and they've stepped into a parenting course that's happening. Interestingly, much like this here, Jesus didn't invite them back to his own house. That may be partly because his house was in Nazareth and they just tried to kill him. But nonetheless, he gets invited into Simon's house and they provide the food and everything. And Jesus enjoys that. The parenting course that's going on at the moment, out of family fun, is happening in the home of someone who's not a member of OCC, but who wanted to host and sort things out for us. That's the kind of dynamic that we're reading in the scriptures. There's the big and there's the small. And it's not just all about us. It's about what God's doing and how we involve our... How do our homes get caught up in the connections that God is providing for us? Jesus steps out into the more public place, meets some new people, does some stuff, and comes back into the domestic space and other things happen there too. If you're not in... I picked up the leaflet and then I promptly lost it. The, no, no, no. There's a leaflet, which someone will find from it in a minute. Maybe I've got it here. No, I don't. It's, it's there somewhere. The missional communities one that says, no. If you're not in a missional community, if you don't, that's what we call the thing. Don't worry about it. Stuff that's going on outside of Sunday mornings. We've got some leaflets, all kinds of postcards and whatever in the foyer. We'd love everybody to join in with that and experience the fullness of um, how we are living life together as a church. So that's the first thing. We're in people's homes. There's almost always food. There's food in Luke chapter 4. And that takes us on to the next point, which is in verse 39, practical service. The first thing that Simon Peter's mum does, mother-in-law, sorry, does when she gets up is start waiting on Jesus and his entourage. Uh, You see the same thing happening elsewhere. Again, in Acts, and if we were to go back to Acts chapter 16, in Philippi, when there's an earthquake and then everything, and the, the jailer who is looking after Paul and his companions, in, well, I say looking after, not looking after them very well, they're in a dungeon, really. But the, the jailer becomes a Christian. He's saved as the Holy Spirit works and draws him to Christ, and he gives his life to Jesus. The first thing he does is wash the wounds of Paul and his companions, who'd been lying there in their bloodied state all along. There's something about receiving salvation from Jesus that kind of switches us on to practical service of other people. And that's what happened for Simon's mother-in-law. Admittedly, in this case, she'd been sick, and that had incapacitated her. But she had the option of simply uh, of doing all kinds of things, of wandering around and telling everybody else about it. But what was on her heart straight away was to serve others. That's why here on a Sunday morning, talking about just taking a moment to apply this to our culture as a church, we don't just pay lots of serving staff to come in and serve us all teas and coffees whilst we come. Because we we could, I suppose, run it a little bit more like going to the theatre or something and just have some employees doing stuff for us and um, make life work that way. But we don't. And it's not because we're cheapskates. It's because we have this strong expectation 
that people who found salvation in Jesus get out of that a desire for practical service. This thing rises up in us where we think, I'd like to make you a cup of tea. Can I please? I see you've left a mess under your chair. What a privilege to come along and clear it all up. Seriously, that is not natural humanity, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's what we expect to see in people who've got saved. Okay. Practical service. And then here's the third thing. I'll need to explain this picture to you in a minute because you might wonder why it's there. It's relevant to this weekend. At the end of the chapter, uh, the crowds come to Jesus and they want him to stay. And he says, no, I'm going. I've got other places that I care about. This is part of our statement of values and vision as a church. One part of our statement of vision and values is that we're going with good news to students, local communities, and beyond. We've always, as a church, placed value on getting involved in what God's doing elsewhere. We've had that video this morning from Paris. Um, The Hipwells aren't here this morning. They're in Milan. Graham and Helen are members of our church leadership team. They're in Milan this weekend. This is Milan, hence the picture. The reason that they're in Milan is because God spoke to them that there was some, he wanted them to get involved in something new that he's doing there. They're quite a prophetic couple, and they're happy to act on the basis of having had that revelation in prayer. So they're in Milan. They don't know what they're doing. They know someone in Lausanne in Switzerland who happens to know a pastor of a church in Milan. So they've joined up the dots and they've gone in the hope of visiting those people. But they've gone to pray. They've gone to explore. So God, what is it that you're doing here that you want to involve us in? That's why it's delightful to be praying for people, getting involved in church plants this morning, looking beyond what we are already. The, the thing is, it does mean that people move on and leave quite a bit. But you know what? Praise God that we have an involvement in God's work beyond just our little sort of parish thinking. Because if we limited ourselves to parish thinking, our God would get tiddly. And he's not. Jesus is prompted to look beyond. When I was doing my PhD, which was a while ago now, I remember being really frustrated that none of the people in my research group seemed to want to know about the Jesus whom I loved. I still do love. I haven't stopped loving him. And um, I was really frustrated. And I actually, I went all the way up to Birmingham and met an evangelist there to ask for his advice. I said, this is really frustrating. What should I do? And in those days, you had to go all the way to Birmingham to find an evangelist. <laughs> At least one that was used. No, okay, well, we won't go there. And he said to me, so none of your friends want to know about Jesus. I said, well, that's how it seems to me. And it's not for lack of praying and trying and whatever. He said, have you thought about making some new friends? And the honest truth was I hadn't. Hadn't occurred to me. He said, why don't you lift your eyes, look out, and just go and meet some new people? 
oh, that was worth the petrol money. <laughs> Good advice, thank you. And actually, at the time, I got involved in the Lee, a lunch club that was being run on Blackbird Lees ahead of us planting the church that we then planted there a few years later, more church planting. So there we are. I'd like to pause at this point and say, look, there's three things there that came to the fore. Just They just kind of bubble out of the story of Jesus' time in Capernaum, being in homes, practical service, looking beyond. Which of those do you want to act on? In the next week or so, which of those would you like to say, that's part of the gospel story, it's part of the way Jesus is at work, I'd like more of it. This is, I'm going to, you're looking at me a little bit shocked. I'm expecting some response, not just sort of spoken out, but in our lives. Because when I said, let's pray that this word gets into our lives, you all said, amen. I heard you. (laughs) So, we're looking for something to happen. Can we take a moment just to think for yourself, maybe chat? If you're one of those people that needs to talk to think, um, then talk to someone so that your brain can, can do its thing. And seriously, pick one of these things. What is it that God's saying to you? If one of these three things is going to be more part of your life in the next couple of weeks, which is it going to be and how is it going to happen? I'm going to give you two minutes. The Holy Spirit can work that fast. Okay, I hope there's something clear and concrete that you know that you can do differently. James 1 reminds us not just to hear the word of God, but to do it. Elsewhere, like someone that looks in the mirror and goes away and forgets what they look like, i.e. there's no point. For me, looking at that just now, I know that in a couple of weekends' time, I'm going to be at a retreat weekend, and I have the opportunity to share a couple of things. And I know that it's going to be a time when I need to just open out more what looking beyond will look like for us as a church um, in terms of where we might be planting churches next. I, need, I could easily let that drop and just get on with some more um, urgent things. And um, there's a really practical thing. I'm going to change what I'm planning to say there in order to be part of something that goes beyond. So I'm just hoping that there are some simple practical things that have come to mind for you that you can do differently. So that was, those were sort of various sorts of aperitif, really. The main course is all around one word. The main course here is around this word, authority. And we're going to have to unpack this and find out what it might mean for us today. The contrast between Nazareth and Capernaum is all around this word, authority. If you were to read back earlier in the chapter, you'd find that the people there were likewise amazed by what Jesus said. And verse 22, I think it is, it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. In Luke and Acts, the word gracious is put side by side with the word power. We find that lots of times. In Acts chapter 4, in, written by Luke, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Power and grace. 
In Acts chapter 6, Stephen, before he's martyred, is described as a man full of God's grace and power. Grace and power, power and grace. In Nazareth, they said this man has gracious words. This man has power. He speaks powerful words. They recognized Jesus' power, and yet they rejected him. In Capernaum, they saw something else. They recognized not just his power, but also his authority. Authority is about having the right to exercise power. Not just being powerful, but having the right to exercise power. It is the right thing for Jesus to be powerful. It's not something to be objected to or avoided. It's as things should be. Jesus has not only power, but he also has authority. Today, of course, many people feel that there is no such thing as authority. There is only power. These are some things that we might hear people saying, that you know, with so many competing ideas of what constitutes normal or of what constitutes right and wrong, it's really up to everyone to work it out for themselves. We might hear it being said that no one has a right to tell anyone else what to do. In fact, we might hear it said that anyone who claims authority is simply engaged in a power play. And that so-called norms are simply things agreed by people in power in order to sustain control. Might makes right. That is to say, history is written by the victors and truth is lost along the way. That's the mood pretty much everywhere in our society. Um, Oxford author... Philip Pullman, in his Northern Lights uh, trilogy, has the word authority. He calls one of the characters in his books the authority. But that authority, if you've read the books, is actually an angel who pretends to be creator God in order to gain control. It's a power play. He doesn't actually have any right to rule, but wants to enforce his will. That's what is, and he chooses the name, the authority. That's the feeling that lots of people have about authority today. And I can do this highbrow, and I can do this lowbrow. We'll start with highbrow. Uh, Michel Foucault is a French philosopher, was a French philosopher. He said this, uh, Schools serve the same social functions as prisons and mental institutions to define, classify, control, and regulate people. I thought it was a picture of you, Danny, for a minute, actually. But it's not. <laughs> I can do this lowbrow as well. I actually I had to change the vocabulary a little bit to make it appropriate for Sunday mornings. 
but authority is what sets apart an idiot in a state-issued costume from his idiot brothers. In other words, there is no authority. If anyone claims to be in charge or to require something of us, we're entitled to resist because it's an illusion. Authority isn't really there. Now, here we go. Not many of us are outright anarchists. I don't see this haircut anywhere or this tattoo anywhere in the room. Not many of us are outright anarchists. may have a few little kind of anarchist tendencies and moments, but, but a lot of us would understand this a little bit more. Let's cut ourselves free from authority. There's a sense in our generation that authority is an oppressive thing if indeed it's anything at all. But this passage in Luke's Gospel indicates that authority is more than a confidence trick. There's something much better, something much stronger. Here, without claiming to have authority, Jesus is recognized as being an authority. It's in him. And it comes out in what he says and does. Verse 32, it says his teaching is authoritative. His teaching is authoritative. We might say Jesus has the authority to define truth. If Jesus says it's true, it's true. End of. If Jesus says it's right or wrong, so it is. He's not mistaken. There's no room to question him. We we ask our questions, but he gives the answers. His teaching is authoritative. He defines what's true. Secondly, his orders are authoritative. Whether, as here, demons, he rebukes the demons, they go. He rebukes the sickness, it goes. Elsewhere in the Gospels we read, he rebukes the storm, it's still. He says that someone's sins are forgiven, and they are. His commands, his orders, are likewise authoritative. I am denied as to whether to unpack something here about demons and unclean spirits and how all of that stuff works in our Christian lives and in the church and hopefully doesn't work in the church as we actually participate with Jesus in his ministry of rebuking and sending out uh, those um, evil spirits. But I remember that I preached at greater length on it back in January. If you want to, as part of our series on the gift of life, I spoke one morning on helping others find freedom. Now, if you want to dig into that a little bit more, that subject, then I encourage you to go online and on the church website, get back to January and the teaching series on the gift of life. And there I was able to give the subject um, enough time rather than just including a couple of minutes on it this morning. 
There was a famous preacher in London called Martin Lloyd-Jones. In 1957, he observed that people had ceased to listen to the church because the church had lost her authority. In 1957. We're 57 years on from that now. Whatever's gone on in the church, whatever's gone on in society, Jesus hasn't lost his authority. His authority remains strong. At Jesus' transfiguration, God said of Jesus to the disciples who were there, This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus has authority. It's more than power. It's the right to exercise power. And coming back to Luke chapter 4, there's a couple of things in here that just give us little windows on where Jesus' authority came from. The demons have got it clear, haven't they? Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And again later, uh, as he's casting out demons, they're shouting out, you are the Son of God. Jesus' authority came from a number of places. One of them is his status. Jesus has a unique status amongst all humanity. Jesus is fully human. He's one of us but unique amongst all of humanity in also being fully, fully God. He alone is the whole, if we look at the whole of humanity, he is the one who is the Holy One and indeed has been God from all eternity, one of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. At the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, it says this, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Wow. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. Christ is unique. Of course, this is a whole other subject, but Jesus chose to share that status with us, that we might also be called children of God. We're not divine in the way that Jesus is. We haven't existed from all eternity. And yet Jesus chooses to share with us the status of being children of God. He calls us brothers and sisters. And we could uh, talk about the authority that he gives to us. But it all starts with him. And we'll never step into the authority given to us if we don't first embrace the authority that is given to him. Jesus is unique. He has a unique status. The Holy One of God, the Son of God, very God from all eternity. His authority comes from that place. 
from that status. But that's not all. Jesus also has an authority that comes from his intimate relationship with the Father. In this passage in Luke's Gospel, we find that Jesus went out and found a solitary place. He went out into the wilderness to be by himself. In the parallel to this passage in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 1 and verses 35 to 39, it tells us that it tells us what Jesus did in that time in the wilderness that's recorded in Luke 4. It tells us that he went to pray. He went away from people to get time with his father. And that intimacy with the father was also a source of his authority. We could say that Jesus got his power from the Holy Spirit that fell upon him at his baptism, but he got his authority from his relationship with the Father. That intimacy with the Father is where his authority also comes from. Um, some of you know that um, through some members of this church, um, Bev and I became friends with an Indian televangelist called Joshua David. Um, when he and his brother first became Christians at the age of 13 or 14, they read the Bible afresh, and they read in the Bible that if you have faith the side of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to be cast into the sea, and so it will go. So they decided to start small, and they bunked off school, and they sat in their back garden commanding the bricks to fly across the garden. They figured they'd start small. Um... Actually, they bunked off school for weeks doing this, trying to do miracles where they could. He's a passionate man. Didn't work, though. He embraced the fact that as a Christian, he'd become a brother of Christ and a son of God and had the authority that comes from that status. But he wasn't living in an intimate relationship with God. There's something about that intimacy with God which brings more authority in practice in what we do as we see what the Father's doing, we hear what the Father's saying, and we engage with what he's already up to in the world. And just things just go up and take off in terms of the exercise of authority the right exercise of power, in fact, as we do that. Jesus is our example and did it perfectly. There's a final thing. Um, there's a gap you can see there. There's a final thing. It's not in this passage, but it's there in Luke's gospel. And in talking about authority and trying to do it in a balanced way, it seems right to mention it. Uh, in the Song of Mary in Luke chapter 1, which is sometimes called the Magnificat, because it starts with this phrase, my soul glorifies the Lord, and it's the, the Latin thing. You may have heard it labeled that way. Mary says uh, that God, in bringing salvation, has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. Brought down rulers and the rich and the powerful and lifted up the humble. I was talking to, I'm looking for Dave Perry, I don't think he's here this morning, I was talking to Dave about this in the week, and he was saying that when Mother Teresa collected her Nobel Peace Prize, um, she chose, when the, all this international audience was gathered there, to give everybody both barrels about abortion. 
and tell everybody what God thought of it all. That was just her choice. Apparently, when she did so, there was a silence that people received what she said as having authority. And part of that was because she's laying down in the slums and washed the bodies of lepers. And those who are humble will be lifted up. She spoke with authority on that occasion. But it's not just, it's not just human psychology. It's not just that we, as people, might defer to others who've done good service. But there's a God-given authority that God gives to humble servants. It's more than just a psychological thing. It's a spiritual thing. And the place where we should go, and we're going to break bread in just a minute, and all our focus is going to be on Jesus, because he deserves it all. We're going to be helped to get there by turning to Philippians 2. Because in these verses, it makes as clear a statement as you'll read anywhere of how humility leads to authority. Jesus stoops down low. It's there in the Old Testament, isn't it? That God stoops down low to make us great. That's his heart. Jesus stoops down low to lift people up to heaven, to make people great, to share his status with people. But the fruit of that was that he was given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus, it says, verse 5, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul started the meeting with a question. Read from later in Luke's gospel. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked. Jesus asks us this morning, who do you say I am? I mean, you can have all these theories and ideas and stuff that other people say. What about you? (laughs) How do you see me? Jesus asks, who do you say I am? Jesus has authority, King of kings and Lord of lords. I think sometimes it would help us to think less WWJD, and a bit more, I'll get this right, WDJC. What I mean is, not just what would Jesus do, but what does Jesus command? It's a different question. When we ask what would Jesus do, there's quite a lot of room for us to speculate, isn't there? 
Well, Jesus was kind of nice, so I think he'd have done this. What does Jesus command? It's a different question, and it's a question for this morning, because we're looking at his authority. One thing that Jesus commands is our worship. As we bow our knee, let's bend our knees before Jesus this morning. Let's bow to him. Let him be lifted high. Let us bow. Let us bend. He's true. And at any point that we deviate, we're the ones who need to bend. So let's bow. Let's bend. If you're aware in any way that you've been resisting the words of Christ, if you've been considering alternatives to obeying Jesus, my plea this morning is let's all together come under his authority. Let's do it together. Let's submit to him. Now please, please don't wriggle. Please don't wriggle. Wriggling words won't get us anywhere. Let's not let's not get distracted by the questions of oh but did Jesus really mean that? Jesus said what he meant He meant what he said. And he said it knowing that bits of it would be taken down for all eternity and be taken as God's word across many cultures. He knew all of that and he said it nonetheless. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, bang. So let's bend. We're going to break bread together. Jesus asks us to bend, that he himself was broken. He's not asking us to do something harder than he did. He's asking us to do something significantly easier made powerful by what he did. He was broken for us. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were broken for us. We thank you that you were obedient to death on a cross and that you are not some confidence trickster who just wants to be in charge but that every ounce of power you have you direct in love towards us for our good and so we can trust you however however radiant you are in your holiness you've made a way for us to come as 
Carolyn read from Isaiah 6. When we say, woe to me, for I am unclean, you come and you cleanse us. Clear away all the muck and make us suitable for the presence of the everlasting God. We thank you, God. We thank you. I pray particularly for those amongst us who right now have an issue in mind. A certain something that has been a point of tussle with you, Lord God. I pray for the grace to bend. I pray for the grace to bow. as we take time to remind ourselves that you were broken. So Jesus, we thank you for this bread and the wine that we have with us this morning. We thank you for what they remind us of. And as we break it now, we ask that you would come and meet with us. And that your power would be at work amongst us. Pray in Jesus' name.